everybody. Happy Labor Day. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate you guys coming by and listening and keeping this thing going. And for those of you who listen and then watch the live show, or maybe you watch the live show, then you listen. Hey, uh, double thank you to you. Uh, not a real theme on this episode. It's just Barrett Knox and I uh, just getting together and chatting about a few different things. Baron, if you don't know him, he's been on the show a few times. He's a retired CW5, flew OH-58 Deltas and Apaches. And we just get together, talk about a few things that are trending in the news, talk a little bit about uh, coming back from the war, you know, different experiences, things like that. So you'll hear a little movie clip in there that we talk about. And uh, if you're listening to the show overseas, you may not have been able to see the video because I got a copyright issue with the video, even though it clearly falls in within fair use, whatever YouTube, I'll play your game. Uh, but thanks again for everybody listening, supporting the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can check out the merch store. Got the link down below as well as Patreon. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. Uh, some of you guys are hardcore. You've been there since the beginning. Really, really a uh, big thank you. All right. Well, we're going to roll right into the show again. Not a real theme. Just kind of just jumping in and I hope you enjoy it. All right. So we got all that nonsense out of the way. A big thank you guys for coming here and just hanging out with Barrett and I. We got a few topics to talk about. Um We'll get through some stuff that's sort of trending in the news and then uh, just go into some other topics that Barrett and I had kind of just bounced off each other. So the big one right now, unfortunately, is looks like a couple of different crashes. And one just happened yesterday down in Florida. And uh, let's see, Jake, if you can find that video. Um, yep. Have it pulled up. Let's see. I've got the one you sent me um, for Australia. I don't see the one you sent me for Florida. Uh, okay, sure I, I think I've got it. Let me see if I can pull it up myself. Um, yeah, I saw a couple of articles on it, but I didn't find a video. First, I've heard of it. Yeah. Though. Let me see. Let me share the screen. And there it is. All right. Hopefully, that's. Dang. Yeah. So I'm going to mute it. Now, apparently, I've I've even seen that all three of the people involved in this survived, or I've seen two of three. I think it's still kind of early. I, I don't really know what the deal is. Um, but we'll try to avoid too much. But as you can see, uh, this helicopter is on fire. And it looks like the fire is kind of at the tail like the root of the tail like where the fuselage uh, goes into the tail and it's and it seems to be flying for a while this is actually a good video of it because it does fly for quite some time now i can't control this video can you tell what it is is it a 145 it it yeah it's a eurocopter um it was a um fire rescue as you can see can't get rid of that pause. I don't know if that's showing up, but you see it's been flying for a while. And I know there was reports that they had called in and said, Hey, we got a problem with the aircraft. And eventually the tail just collapsed and it spun out of control, hit an apartment. But like I said, I'd actually seen that at least two, if not all three had survived. I don't know if that's changed. I don't, you know, I don't know if I was reading bad, bad info. Um, they still obviously don't know what caused the fire. That's just kind of a strange place to have a fire. I don't know much about Eurocopters. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't either, but that's where I would speculate the oil cooler is. Um, hmm. maybe, it, maybe the oil cooler busted out and that provided 
some of that, you yeah. know, flammable material back there. You got an engine fire right at the tail boom fuselage connection point. Um, but I, I'm just purely speculating, but it, yeah, yeah obviously sure. as soon as that tail boom separated, he, uh, the CG shifted and he came to an in instantaneous stop and then just went vertical. It's... Yeah. The two things that jumped out at me is one, like I said, just a fire in a strange place, but that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And then two was the fact that they seem to be flying for quite some time with that, which there's not going to be any notification. At least I, I can't imagine that aircraft has any sort of fire notification system in a cockpit in that area nothing i ever flew did you know you don't have fire sensors everywhere it's generally just the engines or you know something like that apu yeah um yeah i it's too bad luke's not on because he <laughs> he flew those uh luhs um so he might actually have some uh some insight it's a 135 i see in the chat yeah so yeah um, so we all out there may may have some insight into into what was happening, but, um, obviously a bad deal, but yeah, I looks like they knew then somebody was saying here in the chat that they were turning back and probably trying to get, find a clear area yeah. to get into. And it just turned into a little bit too long. But yeah, and I see that they had turned back and I did see that there was some, some chatter. I didn't hear anything in the radio back and forth that I saw that talked about a fire. Um, and that's why I say, I wonder if they knew they had fired because yes, they had a, fire arm alarms and suppression but that's what i'm getting at is like not everywhere in the aircraft has that so like in the apache if your tail is on fire you're not going to know that unless somebody tells you there's not an alarm that's going to tell you your tail is on fire um so and yeah exactly i don't suspect they realized it was as bad as it was because i think you know and again i'm not i'm not second guessing anything they did obviously they they did the best they could with the decision there were the information that they had but I think had they known it was a fire, I think I would have just landed anywhere. You know, I would have just put it down on the street. So that's what tells me. I don't think that they necessarily knew there was a fire. They just knew there was something wrong. Yeah, I agree. Um, you, right. You can't ever second guess. And, uh, yeah. you know, you feel comfortable until you don't. And then, yeah, you know, a lot of times, yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes the decisions don't work out. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think from like a Kiowa standpoint, you'll remember this better than me, but you know, if you had some sort of problem in the oil cooler, really it would just be a pressure. Was there even a temperature indication in the cockpit? I can't remember. Yeah. So you would get oil temp high. Um, but that, that pressure system, and it's probably the same in the EC, but if it's like at the oil cooler, you know, that's, uh, it's probably if you had a crack in it or if one of the lines separated or something, it would probably blow all that oil out within half a sure. minute or so. And so you yeah. in rapid succession get, um, low oil pressure and then you'd get low oil quantity. And then you, you know, then it would start to overheat. Then you get high engine oil temp, things like that. And then if, you know, maybe there's metal fatigue and some bearings grinding and, uh, and that caused, that critical, you know, spark that caused, I mean, oil isn't yeah. really flammable in and of itself. Maybe it was hydraulic fluid, something who knows, but, um, right. or, 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 a, you know, a fuel line popped. Um, mm -hmm. I mean that, you know, that would be 
probably the most likely if if a fuel line popped and it sprayed on the on the hot section um hmm. turn into a that's fire true. pretty quick yeah so a variety of things that could have happened it's unfortunate i mean it's amazing honestly when you watch it and to see kind of where it went down it's amazing that anyone walked away from it um so that's you know good news but uh yeah i was just interested to i'm interested to see how that plays out and, and what was the uh the culprit if they can figure it out but yeah i just from watching that video i just when i watched it i was like i don't think they know at that point that they're on fire because i think um i think they probably would have tried to put it down and that's always my fear with fire is like if the aircraft's on fire it's over time like what kind of structural damage is that going to cause but yeah all right Let's see. Uh, uh, Jake says, I have an article of the damage on the ground. Yeah, if you can pull that up, let's just see. Yeah, it's um, hit a building. No loss of life is good, but it's it's it looks like it's a miracle that that's <clears throat> all there was because this is pretty brutal here in this uh, apartment building here. Yeah. Can you enhance? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right on top of it. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty ugly, unfortunate, but like I said, it's good that there weren't more people there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. See where the, the exhaust comes out right there at the tail boom fuselage connection. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate. Um, and then shifting gears to another crash that just happened over Sunday. So this is something I've been sort of paying attention to lately, just out of interest um, with the Osprey the uh these hard clutch engagements that have been happening over time and of course the osprey is just one of those aircraft that's been kind of known as you know just having issues i've talked to osprey pilots you know they they all tell me it's great and wonderful and, and they love it um but to kind of dig into it there's been a lot of these issues with these clutch engagements um and then more recently there was one uh back uh what was it march i think march or may yeah about this a year is the one where yeah, so uh, in 2022, killed five Marines. There's some back and forth with the family, with the spouse of one of the pilots, talking about you know that the Marines had made promises about things that they'd repaired. And I guess the reason that this kind of struck a chord with me is because, and I'm sure you saw it too in your career, we had a couple of things where there were maintenance issues on aircraft, and it was kind of like the military just can't fix it all at once, you know? So I'm thinking about the, um, I can't remember what part it was on the rotor for the Apache. Do you remember what that component was? I could draw a blank. Well, they had the, the strap packs. They were, I mean, yeah, this is when the Echo first came out. Like there was a whole bunch of new yeah. design changes and, you know, every new aircraft, there's a crop of issues that take some time to develop. And, you know, it had, yeah. well, I'm not going to, I'll just keep what issues it did have. Uh, I'll let somebody else divulge that. Uh, but one of the one of the known ones was the strap packs, um, and yeah. can't remember if they were delaminating or. But nevertheless, there's like you know, take some time for a lot of these things to crop up. I was reading up on those MV22s. Like um, th apparently they'd known about it for a while, and you know, in the media, like they made a big deal out of it about the Navy didn't tell us. And it's like, well you know, does like there, there's material issues like in your car, you know, there's, it doesn't necessarily become a media storm because, uh, there's yeah. a systemic, um, 
maintenance issue on a certain part on a certain airframe. Like they all have them. Um, and so that doesn't immediately mean that, that the DOD has to go, you know, like put the garage door up and, you know, with a megaphone say, Hey, we, we found this problem. Right. So if it becomes a systemic issue over years and years, then maybe it becomes noteworthy, but obviously this resulted in a couple of class A's. Uh, so that I would say that's pretty noteworthy. And, you know, there were some fleet groundings. I think the USMC grounded the fleet a couple of times and that is routine. Uh, it happens to every aircraft out there. Um, when, when there's a problem that comes up, a lot of times it'll generate something called a, you know, they'll, they'll issue, uh, basically an airworthiness, um, check, uh, where they have to go ground the fleet and pop all the covers off and check whatever that component is. And sometimes it's pretty extensive. So if they have to dig into a lot of aircraft, it might take a while to do it and it, it impacts readiness. So, you know, that's not something that's taken lightly. So if it's a, I mean, if it's something that causes, uh, catastrophic failures, clearly that, uh, the right thing to do is to do the analysis and figure out what the problem is. And I think they thought they had figured out what the problem was. I'm somewhat of a, I'm not, I won't say I'm a conspiracy theorist, but you know, I'm, I'm a show me, you know, um, like, uh, I don't believe that everybody is all on the up and up all the time. Uh, and people are motivated to withhold information sometimes too, but you know, there's no reason to suspect that there is sort of some nefarious plot going on here. Like all aircraft have these kinds of issues and, uh, I think the MV-22 has a pretty good safety record comparatively. Yeah, I think across the aggregate, if you look at it, it's, you know, it it does well. But I think it's one of these where when something happens, it's so catastrophic and so, you know, attention getting that it it sounds, I don't want to say sounds worse than it is, but, but it, you know, it, it just grabs everyone's attention and it, and it reminds them of the thing that just happened, even though it just happened was a couple of years ago. Um, and of course, coming from that aircraft, the other optics of it is because one, it's, you know, revolutionary type design, but also two, um, it had such a sort of stunted growth at the beginning of, of having these issues. I think too, one of the things that I, I kind of latched onto was this hard clutch engagement situation has been known for quite some time. And the air force, it looks like the air force like stopped flying them for a while, but the Marines kept flying them. And so then that kind of goes into that optics as well of like, well, well, you don't care about Marines because you guys didn't stop flying them and the Air Force did, you know, th- there could be so many other factors involved in that, like, you know, like you said. Yeah. Hey, shout out to BSD. I just saw their, <laughs> their shout out to me, their throwback. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and especially early on in development, like in the 80s when the Blackhawk was coming out, those were called lawn darts. Uh, they had this problem yeah. with the stabilator where they had uncommanded full down. So you'd be cruising along at 110 knots and the AB, the uh, stabilator would just uncommanded schedule full down. And of course, when you do that, it just noses over and goes right into the dirt, right? And they had a slew of incidents with that happening. Uh, and I don't remember whether it was EMI, you know, some sort of radio radio frequency interference on the actuator or something, whatever it was, but they grounded the fleet for a good long while until they came up with a new component to stop that happening. 
And here we are 40 years later, and that's probably the most successful helicopter program there's ever been, you know? So, um, yeah. I remember F-18s and F-14s, like they were killing a lot of people when they were first flying those things. Um, it, yeah, it I remember takes, the F-16 was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this uh, article was, here, Brian points ahead, out Jake. that the, um, yeah, I just wanted to point this out. This article actually even shows and talks about from Marine Corps times that the Osprey has an average mishap rate lower than both the Harrier, the Hornet, and the Lightning. Yeah. And I yeah, think so what that, they've done with that program, I mean, I'm not defending anything, but it that's yeah. pretty impressive when you look at the complex. Nobody has ever built a tilt rotor before. And that's why it was so expensive. That's why it had a lot of teething problems. Like you got to work those issues out. And I think everybody, first of all, everybody that straps on a green, a blue or a gray military aircraft does so knowing that there is some risk involved, right? Whether you're sitting in the back or you're, you're, you know, behind the controls, like everybody that gets in one of those things knows exactly that there is an element of risk. Um, you mitigate that with training and, you know, and maintenance and all those other things that go into it. But nobody's, you know, uh, I think we all have the utmost faith in our maintainers. Like uh, nobody gets in a, in a military aircraft um, with any sort of doubt about their maintainers. So I mean, that's a bond of trust that we all have. And uh, nothing happens without those guys doing what they do. So. Yeah, and there and there's some comments that I was gonna say the same thing. I again, I think it goes back to optics, right? Because that's a great data point that their overall uh, safety record is better than an F-18, a, a Harrier, whatever. But that's exactly the point, right? An F-18 goes down one, the guy can punch out, but two, it's only one dude, maybe two, depending on the type. And Osprey goes down, nobody's punching out. And yeah, there's, you know, 20 people in the back where I don't know if I carry that many, but you know, I don't know however many people I can carry that's how many people are, are going, uh, with it. And so obviously that's a problem. And then of course, now we have one that just went down on Sunday. Of course, we don't know what caused it. Um, but all this news about hard clutch engagements back and forth with the families had, had just been kind of in the news. And then this happened on Sunday. So, uh, be interested to see what's going on there. I think, surprisingly once again one of these where an aircraft goes down and a lot more people survive than you would maybe think about it i obviously i didn't see the crash i don't think there's any video of it if there is i have not seen it but uh, i think they had 20 survivors and i think three were killed I'm, now i'm drawing a blank because i remember reading the article and i can't remember if it's uh yeah it said three were killed looks like both the pilots and then a uh, a corporal i'm not sure if he was a crew member or if he was just a guy in the back but yeah um so you know over time i guess we'll we'll see what 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 transpired there but yeah and it, you know it's kind of a morbid topic like um it's yeah. something that we we live lived uh people i you know i guess find it interesting but th there's something that statistics <clears throat> you know you can compare accident rates from for instance f-18 to mv-22 to uh-60 to whatever like what what's lost in that sauce and that algorithm is maybe they didn't parse out training accidents versus material failure or whatever like the flight regime in f-18 is nothing like an mv-22 which is nothing like a uh-60 um you know etc so how many of those are material failure how many of those are 
uh, hard landings on the carrier deck, you know, and pitching seas in the middle of the night. Like there's inherent risk in each of those mission sets, you know, flying goggles at 50 feet near wires. Like you, you may have wire strikes. That's a class A, but that's a different, that's a mission related risk. Like material, material failures, I would, I would say are exceedingly rare. Um, most yeah. crashes probably are, um, you know, I hate to say it, but they're, they're either training failures or, you know, human mistakes, um, a moment of inattention, uh, people doing stupid stuff. Um, you know, you know, oh, there's a lot of reasons, but, uh, material yeah. failure in these things is pretty comparatively pretty rare, statistically pretty rare. Well, and it all, we always talk about like the chain of events, right? And all those things can lead in. You can have a material failure and still walk away from it. It's sometimes it's how quickly you recognize it. It's do you do the right actions when it happens? And again, we're not, you know, we're not Monday morning quarterback and pilots. Everybody makes mistakes. It's just sometimes you end up making a mistake at the wrong time. I mean, I've, I've been personally the investigator for an aircraft that it was a material failure, but it was a crew misidentifying what it was that then caused a yeah. greater failure. Like it would have been completely survivable. Like, you know, you lose an engine. Okay. We well, got another one. Well, if you pull off the wrong engine, now you got no engines. Yeah. Um, and so material yeah. failure, but crew mistakes kind of lead into that. Um, I think too, the, the sort of, uh, the second order effect of this is the impact it has on the flight crews though. Cause I remember like the strat packs. I'm glad you reminded me that that's what it was, but that was a big deal. I was in Iraq on my last deployment when that became a big deal. And I remember listening in on phone calls with like our brigade commander with higher ups and with, you know, senior warrants and stuff talking about this, this issue. And there was a lot of concern about dudes, you know, strapping on the aircraft because they just did not have the confidence that the equipment that they had was going to, uh, you know, maintain. Um, so over time when these things, they also kind of build up into the psyche of people that, you know, I, I don't want to take as many risks. I don't want to fly as much, you know, it just kind of has the second order effect that you can't really, you can't really pin the tail on and say, this is the effect. It's just over time. It can, it can wear down on some folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, add to that, the, the environments, especially helicopters, the environments they operate in and have been operating in for the last 20 yeah. years, like they were designed I think we outflew their design life by like 10 times or something or the op tempo, right? You commander, you, you were a commander. So, you, you know, you, you knew by the books, like you had a, a an operational tempo that was funded in uh, at home station for like, I, you know, a couple hundred hours a year or something like that per airframe. Mm -hmm. And then they project that out to, you know, over the life cycle of the aircraft, you know, let's say it's 5,000 hours. So they, they think, the, you know, the service buys that helicopter or plane or whatever with a design cycle in mind. And let's say it's 20 years. And at the end of that, you know, in 1980, I, I guarantee you in 1980, we did not think we were going to be flying H-64s, <laughs> UH-60s, and CH-47s in 2023. Um, right. Yeah, here we are. I mean, some of them are new builds. Most of them are new builds now, but nevertheless, uh, you know, the Kiowa I flew was built in 1969. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And, and certain if, and even if they were certainly not with the 
amount of flight hours that they have under their belt from the GWAT. I don't think anyone, you know, anticipated that level of flying. But um, yeah. What what was the one in the fifty eight we had? What was it? Cracks in the tail boom? Wasn't that a thing that was? Yeah. So yeah, there's four four bolts. So they called it the donut, I think, where the tail boom attached to the fuselage. And uh, if I remember right, there was four, you know, hardened steel bolts that hold that thing on. If they're not shimmed right, remember you used to do the, you push on the tail boom and then kind of keep mm. your hand right there and you could feel the metal flex a little bit. That's what we were looking for. Like totally mm. not something that your line pilot really should ever know about. But, you know, if you got a good maintenance pilot um, that mentors you and says, here, take a look at this, you know, look at how much yeah. you're, when you when you're doing your tail rotor uh, bearing check, right? Like how much is how much play is in the bearings? Like you mentioned, like in your airline life, you know, you kick the tire. Yeah, there's four tires. Um, that's good pre-flight. <laughs> um, you were mentioning it the other day. Like in the military, we pay a little closer attention just because we have a little bit more intimate relationship with the machines that we're flying in every day. Um, and you learn a lot more, you know, I think as a commercial pilot, you just kind of show up and get in the seat for the most part, you would know better than I feels that way. Yeah. yeah it feels that way. <laughs> well, I think too, I, and I've not flown commercially with helicopters. I'd be interested to know like how much more, um, of an in-depth pre-flight and sort of review of the aircraft they do because in the airlines, one, you, they, I mean, they're running all the time. I mean, those aircraft, just like they never get turned off. Um, but they have a lot of maintenance people kind of pouring over them, you know, between flights and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, an airplane is just inherently more stable, right? I mean, there's just a million things that can go wrong with a helicopter. So I think that we as helicopter pilots know that. And so we spend a lot more time pouring over the thing. Um, hell, I probably look at the jet more so... I know I do because I watch other FOs. Like if I'm, you know, trading out or I'm nearby and I see a guy doing a pre-flight, you know, he's just kind of walking around looking at stuff. I mean, I'll actually like, you know, look at certain particular things. And I think I probably look at it just a little bit more, um, in detail. And that's just from, you know, that background being a, a helicopter guy. So I'd be interested to know how a commercial helicopter pilot, you know, how, how in depth of a, uh, pre-flight do they do? I imagine it's pretty, pretty in depth. Yeah. But somebody can tell us in the chat. Um, okay. Uh, speaking of, I, I we were talking right beforehand when we went live, and I, I wanted to bring this up. I was actually trying to get someone else on here with us um, who's also uh, in the airlines now but but was in the Army, um, but the timing was too short. But I wanted to bring this up. Jake, can you bring up that VA FAA article? So this article has been making the rounds. We've been kind of talking about it uh, in the chat or in, uh, the discord, but a bunch of pilots have been investigated officially by the FAA for the VA, a disability, you know, the basically checked out for fraud. Um, the background on this is when you file for your disability, you're basically saying, Hey, these things are wrong with me and it's the military's fault or, you know, whatever. And you're getting, you may be getting paid for that. You may not, you may get a 0%. You may be rated. In fact, I think I have one that's, you know, yes, you have this, but you get zero for it. Yeah. Um, in the old days, of course, 
you know, government side, this side and that side didn't really talk very well. And so the FAA and the VA were kind of this two separate entities. What has happened recently is they are starting to talk. And what they have discovered is that there's a lot of pilots, a lot of former military pilots who have, you know, they're getting up towards 100 percent. Percentage really doesn't matter, but they're basically they have things that they are recognized as having. And the FAA is not tracking it. So when you do your flight physical, which is very different in a civilian world than it is what we're used to in the military, but um, you know, you're supposed to disclose all of your all of your things, all of your disabilities. And so some guys have not done that because of just not understanding the system. Some guys have done that on purpose because they knew that it would cause a problem. And so what has eventually has happened in the past, I'd say in the last so two years, is the VA and the FAA are starting to talk. Um, they're starting to compare notes. And the FAA has found that there's a bunch of pilots out there who are getting disability for something. And it could be things like PTSD. It could be things like heart conditions, you know, whatever, sleep apnea. They're getting paid. They're claiming it. They have not told the FAA. And some of these things are automatically grounding, at least for an investigation, right? Just to make sure that they're safe to fly. Um, but there is this article talking about there's 5,000 pilots. And in fact, I talked to one today. One messaged me today. So I, I'm not going to say his name, but someone that I respect a lot. He's been in the airlines for years, retired military, found out he's one of these people. And it's because he didn't realize, and I don't blame him for not knowing this, that even if you got 0%, even if the, the, the VA said, yes, you have this thing, but we're not giving you any percentage, the FAA wants you to report that. A lot of people haven't done that. I'm starting to worry. I don't remember if I did that. I'm pretty sure I did, but I, I don't know. I'm going to have to double check. Um, but that can screw you up and that can ground you. Um, yeah. but it kind of, it, it, I wanted to ask you about it because one, you're not in the airline, so you don't have a dog in this fight. You're, you're kind of unemotional about it because it is an emotional thing. I've seen a lot of people angry because the FAA and the VA are talking, which I don't really understand. I mean, it's the government. I mean, it's the government's talking to the government. Why you're surprised by that. I, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, I've seen other people say, well, you shouldn't try to claim everything if you're going into the airlines. I have some thoughts on that I'll, I'll share, but I, I want to just, I just want to get your thoughts if you have any. Yeah. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? And I read in an article today that uh, the, the article basically stated, like, it seems like, you know, some guys are trying to uh, tow both sides of the line and that's absolutely the case, right? So I think so. Um, it, if you've been, if you're retiring after 20 plus years in the military, like you have some issues, legitimately so, and you should sure. go claim them and, and get your, your disability compensation for it. On the other hand, um, if you're going to go fly or, you know, be a doctor or any of the other things where th those could be significant is, uh, issues, like the ethical thing is to, is to properly report. I don't think I'm saying anything that anybody else wouldn't say right but um yeah. i for one thing and you know as well as i and all the other military pilots in this chat like we spent our careers hiding our issues <laughs> yeah like 100%. you don't go to the flight surgeon because um uh, unless you really need to like you got to be yeah. there's got to be arter arterial blood coming out right before you go see that guy <laughs> Um, because it's very likely that they're going to find something maybe even totally unrelated to the, to the, it, you know, you go in for the, for the flu or the sniffles or something. And it turns out, you know, they, they put an EKG on you and you got a heart murmur or something. Guess what? Your flying yeah. career is over. So, yeah. um, 
you, we tend to not self-report and kind of just suck it up. Um, yeah. And then at the end of the military career, then when it when it comes time to like, all right, I've done my bit. Now the government owes me, right? That's the mentality that a lot of people have. And then they, yeah. they come down with this book, you know, this ream of 200 um, sheets of claims and, you know, rightly so, like, you know, go for it. You, you don't get what you don't ask for, but then yeah. you don't expect that not to have con consequences afterwards, right? If you, it's not hard to get 100% PTSD, I don't think, but you should realize that the consequences for being rated for 100 PTSD, like it's spelled out in the, uh, what do they call them? The APAs? No, that's the, yeah, that's the, the whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the, the VA tells you like to get 10%, this needs to exist to get 30%. Yeah. This needs to exist. If you go above 30%, like at 50%, now you have trouble interacting with people and you have, uh, you know, nervousness about being in public and well, guess what? That's probably not conducive to being an airline transport pilot. So yeah, it, it's written down in a regulation on one hand, and then you think that there are no, you know, it's disingenuous for, for people not to, not to yeah. claim it appropriately. Right. Well, I, I have 50%. So. <laughs> so I'm probably going to lose my 50% because I'm hosting a live show and I'm in the airlines, but, but yeah, hundred <laughs> percent, uh, you're right. I, again, I, I, I know there's people who've done good faith. Like the person I talked to before, I know this guy, he, he, it's an omission of not understanding yeah, because yeah. the reality is it is a confusing thing. It is not a set piece as the military, um, uh, physical where you go in and it's like, okay, go to this station, do this. You know, it's very set the civilian world. It's, it's a lot more just kind of amorphous. I, first time I did it, I was kind of like, is that it? We're done. You know? Um, and there's not a lot of understanding of what the VA side and the FAA. So I think it's going to be discovery learning. So hopefully they can kind of see through some of that stuff and recognize like, okay, you didn't put on your last physical that you've got a boo-boo on your left knee from 30 years ago and you get 0% money for it. But I, I'm glad that they are talking. I've, and I've had this argument with people because again, people kind of go back on the HIPAA thing you're in the public trust. If you're a commercial pilot, you're carrying people in the back. We just had this guy, uh, attack a gate with an ax the other day. He's an airline pilot attacked, you know, attacked a, a an yeah. inanimate object with an ax. Was he military? I don't know. You know, I don't know what his background was, but again, it just, it goes to show like, okay, there's, we, we do need to take care of these things and at least recognize that, you know, okay, you have a rating for this thing. Let's just make sure that you're okay. You know, in my case, and I've been very open about, you know, my situation, I was rated for PTSD along with a few other things. I've got a total of 80%. Um, the PTSD, the moment I found out about it, I had just gotten the class one. So the moment I found out about it, it was like a month later, I called my doctor the next day and told him what was going on because I wanted to cover my butt. And he said, okay, cool. Thanks for letting me know start gathering your paperwork for your next class one. We'll get together and we'll talk about it, but I'm not grounding you in a, or anything like that. Okay, cool. I'm doing what, you know, the doctors have told me and I went through the process. It is painful. Um, and I hate it for people that, you know, have to go through it cause it is a long process, but, um, 
again, I, I would just encourage people to be honest. And I've talked about this in other places as well. It's, it's one of those things you got to be upfront and honest about it. Um, I think there's some people that did try to hide uh, some things over time. And I think because the system was designed in such a way that you could. Uh, but now all that stuff's getting dragged out into the light. So, you know, I see, I saw a comment, you know, don't tell anything to the VA. And that kind of goes to my next point, which is don't always count on your flying career. Just like you said right there, Baron, is you could go into the doctor's office one day and find out you're not flying anymore, you know, and, and you feel fine, but something is wrong. Or what if there's something wrong with your family member, right? So what if your wife or, you know, your spouse, your kid comes down with something that is not conducive for you to be gone half the month? doing stuff. And now you've got to do a career change. I'm going to tell you when I was grounded for like two months, that pension and disability was pretty awesome. Like, you know, I mean, I earned it every bit of it, but it was good to have that. And I just, I just warn people away from the idea of just, well, I'm just not going to claim anything. I, I would say claim it, but just prepare yourself for the eventuality that, you know, get ahead of it now, handle it now and don't lie. Yeah, I'm I'm coming up on my last month of my my last army flight physical. So I'm a September mm -hmm. baby. So I got 30 days left basically until my flight physical runs out. And I'm kicking around the idea of just going to an FAA and getting a class two, an FAA examiner and going and getting my class two. But I know it's going to be a nut roll because, yeah, I got rated for sleep apnea, um, you know, and a slew of other issues that, yeah, it's just going to make it hard to make it through that process. I don't know if I'm going to fly again or not. Um, I'm not right now, but I always, you know, and yeah. it's kind of psychological too. Like, uh, I've never not had a flight physical. Right. So, right. um, it, it's almost a point of pride. Like I've never missed a run. I've, you know, never fallen out, like, uh, all those kinds of things. So, well, I've, I've missed some time for <laughs> what we talked about the other day. Um, yeah. But yeah, never, you know, always been a, a physically fit, et cetera. And the, the day the day comes when, hey, we all get older and now I got to acknowledge, well, you know, maybe I maybe I can't pass the flight physical anymore. Um, but I know plenty of guys in their 60s and 70s that are <laughs> in far I, worse physical condition is not the right way to describe it. But they are, you know, more. Uh, more genteel, Round. I should say, right? They're <laughs> two hearing aids and Coke bottle glasses and whatnot. And they're, they're doing uh, autos out there, at, you know, um, at Cairns with, with young kids. So, um, yeah. you know, age and experience can make up for youth and, and vitality in a lot of ways. But Well, and that's what I tell people too, right? Is once you get your foot in the door, generally speaking, you're okay. Um, when I came back from Iraq on the second trip, I was suddenly diagnosed with something that generally only happens to black females. I don't know why. Um, strangely enough, the VA acknowledged that I had it, but, but gave me a zero. But now that that PAC DAC is out, I'm going to refile for that because I think that it'll, it'll turn the corner. But my point is another soldier in my unit um, from that deployment also came down with it. He had a flight packet. He was getting ready to go to, uh, to to flight school. But because he got that condition, he was grounded, barred permanently. That's it. He will never fly. Um, it is an immediate grounding effect. For me, because I was already in the door, I just had to go through the waiver process. I had to you know, have a year of remission, have doctor's appointments. And now the FAA, the last time they sent me a thing was like, hey, you don't need to report on this anymore. 
just just let us know if something changes but otherwise because otherwise i was going to the doctor every month getting or every year getting a report written by the doctor that says hey nothing's changed blah blah blah. yeah they're like hey don't worry about it anymore so i i share that with people just to understand like um it it does seem like a lot of work but but once you get through the the door you're probably okay just like you said the experience and i've flown with a lot of dudes that you know they're probably they're a lot less healthy than me or you um they're probably not getting through that little door on this on the little window on a 737 in case something happens um, but somehow they're passing their flight physical but i think that's you know kind of beyond what we've talked about so far that's another problem that people have with this because it feels like they're targeting veterans um because if you're just mr big guy who you know you got your fixed wing license when you were in your 20s and you joined the airlines and that's all you've been doing you don't have a disability therefore you don't have the va to kind of tattle on you for something there's no there's no mechanism by which the faa can force you to tell them that you have sleep apnea you know you could go to a doctor get sleep apnea um you know or, or whatever and get treated for it and never tell a soul yeah. And I think that's where a lot of people are kind of upset because they feel targeted by the VA and or the FAA through the VA. I can get that. I don't know that it's meant that way, um, but it's I can see how it certainly feels that way. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. And, you know, yeah. the, the airline industry, I'm sure, is a good old boy club, you know, like uh, it it's a self-licking ice cream cone, right? Like the the right. FAA class two examiners need the business. And, you know, the airline industry needs the examiners to keep their pilots certified. So, um, you know, this investigation is, is going to have some trickle down effects in this in this situation that the industry is in, in now with, you know, a declining pilot pool. Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping what it will also do is maybe sort of clean out the pipes a little bit in the sense that it does take a long time. If you're trying to do the right thing, it's taking a really long time because the FAA only has so many people that can review packets. And and now we probably know why, right? Because they've got 5,000 people. I think they've, I think they've grounded 60 from this um, so far out of like, or I'm sorry, maybe it's like 40 out of 600 or something like that. So again, odds are pretty good there, but um I'm hoping that at the end of this is what they've done is at least kind of hit the reset on it all. And then maybe things will go a little bit faster. Cause I think that's another concern. It was certainly a concern I had when I was submitting my paperwork, you know, when I turned that stuff in to the FAA and I was okay to keep flying on my current class one, I turned it in in December. My current class one ran out in the end of February. I didn't know what was going to happen. Right. So February 28th rolled around. I flew my last flight and I was like, I have no idea how long I'm going to be out of work right now. And yeah, that's a troubling feeling, but luckily I had yeah. a pension and VA, you know, disability to back it up. But, um, well, we'll move on from that. One thing I wanted to ask you, we were talking a couple days ago, for those who don't know, I'll, I'll plug it again. Authentic media is a subscription service. You can take a look at It's a few bucks a month. They do multiple podcasts that you can get access to. Uh, I'm running a series over there. Barrett is one of my, uh, uh Guinea pigs. But we were talking about an experience he had overseas uh, where he was also shot. Uh, so you can kind of get the full details uh, of that over there. But one of the things that we started to sort of touch on in that interview. By the way, that got me zero percent. 
I also have zero percent. I, I <laughs> present, but I don't understand present, it. But not compensatory. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't get it. I'm going to go to one of the. Well, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, what was your total percentage? What did you get? I got a hundred. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> All right, good for you. You earned it. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go to one of those things and try to work like the because I don't get credit for sleep apnea. I don't get credit for the sarcoidosis, which I just talked about, which again, I think the PAC DAC will, will cover that. So, um, I mean, I know guys who have sleep apnea, they got 50% just off of that. And I got nothing, but I got nothing for the shooting. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. The sleep apnea. I mean, I, you know, I don't make the rules, but yeah. 50% right off the bat. Like if you have that diagnosis, like that's, that's a huge in, right? So, well, I, th I think they got wise to it because I think a lot of people were claiming it. Um, and so they were just handing it out like candy after a while. And I think finally they're like, whoa, like, like everyone has sleep apnea. Um, cause yeah, I know I, I used to kind of like poo poo it, you know, I, I can, I can tell you that everybody of a certain age when they're approaching retirement, um, you know, the, the inside thing is, Hey, did you go get your diagnosis yet? You know? So, um, I, I got mine because, you know, uh, I don't know, it was six, seven years ago now, but I was feeling tired every day. Um, and so I went and got tested and lo and behold, yeah, I had sleep apnea. Um, I, you know, so I was concerned though, because that generates like if when you have a sleep apnea diagnosis, you are done flying unless you get a waiver and you yeah. have to show compliance and, mm. you know, you got to be on the machine. Like if you want to fly and you have a sleep apnea diagnosis, uh, in, in order to maintain your flight physical, you have to show that you are on it every single day and that it mitigates your issues. And I didn't think like, I kind of like danced around the subject with the doctor. Cause I was like, ah, you know, but you don't know what you don't know. And that was the problem I had with it was I was like, is this some kind of made up stuff? Like, do I really have it? Cause the same thing with you. Like I was, I was tired during the day. I couldn't really understand it. I, I knew I didn't sleep well. Um, turns out I had severe sleep apnea and I tell you what, if I don't sleep at the machine, it's, it's awful. Like, I mean, I'm up all the time. So, um, to me it was worth it. I know some guys are very apprehensive someone that you and I both know, I talked to him about it. He was very apprehensive to get it. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's your quality of life. And I know it's going to be painful, but it's not the end of the world for flying, but it is something that you got to go through. Cause like you said, you got to do the compliance. Um, you know, every, in fact, I think next month I got to go see a doctor and breathe into a tube. I got to get the report that shows how many times I use the machine you know, all this stuff so I can take it to my, my doc and, and show them for my compliance. So it is a chore, but the alternative is not being, being able to sleep. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I think you got to well, take care of yourself. You said you're, you don't have a rating for it. No, no, oh, the VA gave me nothing for that. Yeah. You need, you need yeah. to resubmit. Well, and that's why I think that pack deck will, will help with that as too. I, I think what they did eventually, instead of just handing it out automatically, I think they just wait for you to ask again. I think fundamentally that's probably what they do, which yeah. I just haven't done it because I'm lazy. But um, but anyway, what I wanted to talk to you about, it sort of it sort of ties into the mental health thing. Um, we talked about you getting uh, wounded in Iraq in two, you said 2005. All right. Uh, four. 
four. Okay. We talked a little bit about it, but I wanted to get into it because something reminded me of it the other day. In fact, Jake, I meant to give you the clip and I forgot all about it. Uh, reintegration. Reintegration back home. I wanted to get an idea of what that was like for you because it was a little weird for me. And I wonder if how how coming home, not just from a deployment, but coming home deployment wounded uh, affected you. Um, so are you, are you talking about the unit coming back and reintegrating or no, you like you reintegrating into society? Okay. So, I mean, our experiences went on for 10 plus years, right? We had three, four deployments each. So each time was a little bit different towards the end. They were all kind of the same, like it had become routine. Um, but that first time, like coming home, you know, I was medevaced out just like you were. Uh, and that's a long story. Go check out his, um, what's it called? The authentic media, the links authentic down. Media. Yeah. yeah. So it's a long story, but, uh, I, I got medevaced out of Iraq and then straight to launch duel where they, you know, take you off the C-17 and bring you right into the triage center and kind of reassess you, which that was a whole experience in a, in and of itself. <laughs> you know, I, not not to go off on a tangent, but it kind of funny. Like the when I was laying there in the triage center and they were doing their initial assessment, um, the doc were like, "Why did they do that?" Right. <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, we're gonna have to fix that." And they undid everything that the that the forward deployed <laughs> docs had done, and that was more painful than actually getting shot because they had to open it all back up again. Mm. Um, yeah. But anyway, so you know. The units forward, especially being out, being deployed out of Germany, all that's left there is the families. So, and and life in Germany, we call it stairwell living. So you live in you live in um, communities where the soldiers have either high rises um, or there's multi-story buildings like on the installation itself. We happen to live in the economy on lease in lease department buildings that the army was leasing from the from the Germany. Um, and when we deployed, like the the family stayed back in those apartments, and it was like a a giant sorority house, right? They there were there were no guys left, and they're having you know, parties down the apartment building halls all year long, and they they kind of loved it because and they made some they built some really tight bonds. Um, and the friends we have from our Germany deployment are the still the friends. I mean, this 20 plus years, like we, we seem to have the tightest bonds with those families that uh, that first deployment that we went with and uh, the wives and the, you know, other family members um, kept in touch with those families more so than than other deployments later on. Yeah. So for me, it was like I came home. Uh, I couldn't go to work because there's no aircraft. Um, I'm a pilot, you know, that has to walk around on crutches. Uh, so, and I had to go through rehabilitation, you know, convalescence, let the wound heal and then go through rehabilitation, et cetera, et cetera. It took, took about six weeks. Um, and the options are like, okay, you can stick this guy in an office and maybe have him do paper shuffling something or other, or, but for me, it happened to work out pretty well where they just kind of left me on my own, stayed at home every day, uh, and went to the docs and did my, uh, physical therapy and whatnot. 
And then at the end of it, I just went back. So I was one of the few uh, soldiers. I was one of the few husbands that was back home at the time. Like Mm. everybody else was forward, right? So we didn't have a whole lot of people that were coming back home. Um, And if you were wounded, so I I was in that gray area where I, I could go home and be released to my own care, basically just to heal up. I wasn't hospitalized for six weeks. Like if you were bad enough that you were, you were screwed up so bad, you didn't go to launch. Maybe you went to launch stool for them to stabilize you. Then you got put on a a transatlantic flight and you went to San Antonio or Walter Reed or something else, right? Like if you were a burn victim or something like that. So that's a different experience. I, I, you know, I term it, I got the the golden bullet, right? The golden ticket, like just enough to go home. Um, right. and then, you know, healed up, I, I was definitely combat ineffective. I couldn't fly, couldn't do any military duties, et cetera. So it made sense to get out of theater to make the, the healing up process more efficient and then go back when you're done. Uh, but for me mentally, it was, um, you know, I, we talked about it. Like there was a certain sense of guilt, like everybody's back there, and it was the middle of summer too. Like. I got wounded on Easter Sunday and I was back in launch duel like 10 days later. Uh, so that would have been early May. Um, that was before the truly atrocious heat hits in Iraq. Right. So when you get into mm-hmm. like June, like when I stepped off the plane in June, when I came back, it was a completely different <laughs> Iraq than the one I'd left. Right. And they had been yeah. slowly acclimating to that and things had been picking up. Um, I would say that the reintegration back into the unit was more difficult for me because really? now all of a sudden uh, I just watched rewatched Band of Brothers uh, about a couple of months ago. And you remember when there was a guy that yeah. he got wounded, yeah. he got set back to the rear, and then I think he missed the Battle of the Bulge, and then he got, yeah, he got put right. back in uh, later on. And he was legitimately, like, he couldn't fight. There was no reason for him to be there with his guys. Uh, and when he yeah. got back, like he was treated like a, you know, like an outsider. And I definitely felt that for a little bit. Uh, but I was also an IP, so they needed me. <laughs> so it was easy to get back in the saddle, right? So because, yeah. uh, you know, all the normal IP stuff had to happen. So that that's one mm-hmm. of those core skill sets within a unit that you got to have. And when you lose one of those guys, it's a big deal. Um, so yeah. you want to get them back as quickly as possible. But I, I certainly felt... Like I had missed something, um, sure. in, in being away for two months and then coming back. Um, yes. Yeah. I, um, I think I missed like six months. So I missed a lot. Um, and I know what you mean, like, because it's, it, the, the things that tie you together is that shared misery. And so if you're not there to share it, then, then you're out of it. And that's a great example. I was funny. I was thinking of that the other day too. Cause that guy was like on the jump into Normandy. Like he wasn't just yeah. some dude. I mean, he was like one of the core members had gone through all the Curry nonsense. He was a Curry guy. Under. Yeah. And then he missed out on the battle of bolts cause he was no shit wounded. Uh, and then yeah, brought back in. So that's a great example. Um, I don't remember ever struggling at all. I remember guys being very like, welcome back. And even dudes who I didn't have that much interaction with before, like some of the senior warrants, um, 
really kind of being like, hey, man, welcome back. So I, I, I hadn't really thought about it until you started to, to mention that. Um, and then it's even probably more guy, self-imposed than real. Right? I think so. I think I so. mean, I just yeah. felt that way. I, don't, I can't say that anybody treated me differently, um, right. but I felt a little guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of guilt to be felt. Did you feel, and, and I, you know, you may not want to say if you did, but did you or your family feel after a while, like maybe there was any resentment? Did you ever get that vibe from the other families? Cause you're home, you're safe. And their husbands, their whatever's are, are still overseas or still, you know, in the fight. No, just think about um, it. I, no, I don't think so. Uh, but what what I did note, and and this is a touchy subject, but like the notification chain, um, you know, I told you about like when I was in the when I was at the cache after I got medevac, they rolled me off the helicopter and they bring you into the triage, and then one of the nurses, you know, handed me a sat phone and said, "You want to, you know, do you want to call your wife or anybody?" And I was like, "Yeah." You know, so I called her and said, hey, I'm fine. This is what's happened, yada, yada. And uh, somehow I think one of, you know, the, the rumor mill had gotten word back to the to the rear before the official channels, like before the commanders, the rear D mm. commander had the opportunity to release the information that one of the pilots had been wounded. Right. And it, right. it got it got to everybody else through back channels first. And they were like, you know, it was a kind of a, what, what I would call this typical sort of self-entitled, like, why, why did, why wasn't I informed? Why wasn't this? Why wasn't that? Um, like, you know, it just generated unnecessary concern or churn, I should say, unnecessary friction and those poor commanders that had to deal with that kind of stuff constantly. And we, yeah. and we had some KIAs later on in the deployment too. Um, and this was before like cell phones were read on, like we didn't have cell phones. Cell phones were forbidden for the right. first few years. Um, but it nevertheless, even work there. <laughs> like, you could go to the internet cafe and type your emails and stuff like that. Um, so that, that word made it back quicker to the family faster than official channels had an opportunity to deal with it. And yeah. so that bottom up sort of rumor mill, like caused a lot of issues and they were they were hounding my wife. Like, you know, how come you didn't tell us? <laughs> it's like, cause mm -hmm. it's none of your damn business. Like, you right. know, um, so yeah, that, that was a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there was a little friction on our end with wives and I, I, I think part of it was miscommunication. Some of it was just anxiety. Um, some of it was just we don't prepare people for those situations, particularly spouses. I don't and I'm not throwing stones and saying that we we do a bad job. I'm just saying I don't know how you do it. But I I think that in a lot of cases, spouses in that situation don't really know how to act with other spouses of people that are you know, either deceased or, or wounded. I think even deceased, they kind of get it. Like there's sort of this sort of, you know, uh, unspoken way of handling it. But if somebody's wounded, like, do you, do you come over and check or do you leave them alone? Do you give them some space? Like what's the right answer? And I, and I think we felt a little bit of that when I was home. 
um, which, you know, was kind of upsetting my wife because she felt like she had this connection with these spouses and then they suddenly were not necessarily as engaged with her as they once were. Um, I, to this day, I don't really know why that is, you know, there's different theories. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't know, just something I thought of the other day when we were, when we were talking about that stuff. Um, so what about later, like getting back into society and whatnot, like we were talking about PTSD, uh, ratings and whatnot, like, you know, we talk about resilience a lot and, um, there some people are better equipped to deal with things than others. I, you know, whether call it what you want drama, uh, I don't know, but like for the most part, particularly on quote unquote, the trigger pulling or, you know, the, the pilot side, like we would have indirect fire. It, it was almost weird. It was strange to watch our reactions when a mortar attack would land 200 meters away, like you could hear it coming and you, you know, like we were just like, all right, it landed over there. Like it's over with. And you watch other people's reactions and, and I'm not trying to like hold myself up or anything, but definitely like there's a, there's a different way we compartmentalize or approach things, or I don't know, maintain a certain calmness. I don't, you know, I don't know how to describe it. Um, but I could watch other people lose their shit. And I think that that's, that goes across all levels of society. So maybe the types that end up in the jobs that we do are just more predisposed to be able to mentally process that type of stuff. I'm not sure. Maybe there's an element of machismo in there where I can't, you know, like when we're, we're sitting around with our buddies and, you know, you can't, uh, let your guard down in that regard, you know, in that respect a little <laughs> bit. So I think all of that plays into it a little bit. Um, and, and this probably like maybe, uh, sets up your, one of your topics that you wanted to talk about tonight, like how we view other pilots, you know, um, yeah. there's a cultural element to it too. Um, yeah. especially in the gun world. Right. So, um, yeah. but it, I, you know, when I was in my chew, or when I was uh, enjoying my lunch or something, I couldn't be bothered to like run to the bunker because because <laughs> there was indirect fire coming in. Like, you know, it it is what it is. <laughs> you know. Well, there's so much to unpack there because I think I think part of it is yes, um, people are predisposed to go to certain jobs where they're wired differently and they're going to take things. I think another part of that is. The machismo. Another part of that is time um, in that environment. You become accustomed to it. Um, I'm laughing because I remember going to Afghanistan. It was my second trip, and we'd only been there a couple of days. And I, I think you and I talked about this the other day. But a rocket hit like right outside the RSO night tent, um, like day two of being there. And so I was a little on edge from indirect. I'm new to Kandahar. I don't know how accurate these guys are and I, I remember like the day or two after that i think i was in the chow hall and the siren went off and there was a boom and a lot of people dropped and i dropped and i remember looking up and there was this like sf dude just sitting in a chair like looking down at me like you pansy you know and i felt ashamed like just straight up ashamed yeah. i was like this is this is not who i am <laughs> like what am i doing you know I, I never do this you know um so, so yeah i think like, i think you're right 
you just reminded me of something that always makes me chuckle. Like when we would go on R and R, right? You'd, you'd go back to one of the big air bases, and you'd either you'd transport out of theater on a C one thirty or a C seventeen or some sort of Air Force transport, right? And so you'd have all the Army guys, whether the infantry or their pack clerks or aviators or whatever. Everybody, you know, is in the helicopter, is in the uh, in the back of those C seventeens, and coming out of theater and, and especially going back in theater, like coming back from, uh, where did we go? Um, uh, Abu Dhabi or Dubai. That's one of the, that was one of the R and R spots. Right. Uh, but you, it, even if you went on your two week, uh, R and R back to the States, you would flow into Kuwait, uh, on a commercial and then go onto your military transport at Ali Al Salim to go from Kuwait into theater. Yeah. And, when you cross that line of demarcation, like I remember always going in and out, like, you know, we're at, I don't know, 20, 30,000 feet. Right. And when they cross that border, that, that imaginary border from, from Kuwait into Iraq at 30,000 feet with no air threat, like all of a sudden the air force dudes would get real serious. The body armor would come on and yeah. you know, they, they do their tactical descents. And all the army dudes just be, you know, sleeping and, you know, whatever. <laughs> and yeah. the Air Force crew, the, the load masters and stuff would be looking out the windows. It's like, oh, I think I saw tracers. <laughs> Got their like, little yeah, flare. you probably did. They're about 30 miles away, but you probably yeah. saw some tracers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember my last trip going into Iraq. You know, it was my third tour. And... I was the squadron XO and we were getting on the C-130 and yeah, and I had all these new kids in the unit, you know, it was our first trip and they're getting ready to board the plane, the C-130. We we're flying up to uh, Erbil from Kuwait and they're all putting on their body armor and their helmets and stuff. And I'm just carrying my stuff over my shoulder, you know, and I just, and it made me like, it made me feel a little bit like a badass, like, yeah, come on dudes, you know, cause all these junior kids and they're all looking at me and stuff and I'm just plopping down. And I just like took a nap, you know, like my armor is just laying there. And it, you know, it kind of reminded me in my head of like Hicks and aliens, you know, when they're doing the drop and yeah. the one dude's just passed out, you know, and the lieutenant's over there freaking out. Um, That's exactly but, it. I mean, that was captured yeah. well. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I mean, exactly. I think that was a very true to life uh, type scene. I, um, I will tell you, I don't know how we got off of like reintegration to this, but um, <laughs> what, what really, like when I started to notice or when my behavior changed was, um, especially on the later deployments, like when I wasn't so invested in like winning the war anymore. Um, yeah. and it was just <laughs> another time I was over there, uh, like on day, you know, on your 300th mission or whatever, like there, there is a time period, especially when you get into that last quarter of the deployment where your spidey senses really start to go up, you know, and there's a fatigue element. Like you're just, you're just damn tired because you've been flying yeah. your ass off for eight months. Um, usually it's, you know, going through cold winters and the hot summers. It's physically demanding. You're flying more than you can possibly imagine flying stateside. Um, but to, to cross, you know, cross the wire every single time you go to work, you are going into an unknown scenario where you don't know what's going to happen. And that mentally that starts to get, it got to me after a while, like still sure. did my job, 
Um, but I was definitely like, uh, you know, on edge a little bit in terms of like being hyper aware and less willing to sort of roll the dice. Like maybe I'll just take the conservative approach this time, you know, right. and, yeah. and just, and just make it down the, the backside of this hill and get back home. Um, yeah. but that, that mental fatigue, I think started to set in and that's, you know, historically we were talking about accidents at the beginning on a deployment accidents happen in the first 60 ish days. And in the last 60 ish days, hmm. the first 60 days is all the unknown. Like you don't know where the hazards are. You don't know where the enemy is. You don't know the terrain. You don't know the weather. There's all those things that you're having to figure out on the fly as you're going into the combat zone. And the last 60 days is when you are just not mentally able to deal with all the, the parameters anymore and all the variables and all the stuff you become complacent and yeah. what would have caused you to take a step back and reassess in month four, five, and six, like now you're either missing it or you're just not doing it. Like you, you don't care yeah. anymore. Um, yeah. And then the last 30 days is when nobody takes any risks at all. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's like, oh, the, you know, we got a 3,000 foot ceiling. Nah, it doesn't look good today. <laughs> yeah, there's a cloud 10 miles away. It's probably a storm. We should stay home. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. That's that's a true statement. Yeah, you know, Cody, Cody and me were were the last flight out of. We were the last Seamus flight um, in theater. Two IPs, both had been shot in the same cockpit, and we were the last 82nd helicopter to fly a mission in OF nine ten. Like, man, mm. you know, maybe we. Why? Why is it us in the same cockpit together? Like, well, lightning yeah. can't strike twice, right? So, right. <laughs> yeah, I should have thought about this one beforehand. Um, yeah. Well, the last thing, while we're still on the topic of reintegration, Jake, uh, let's cue that clip up. I had him look for this clip. I this clip has always fascinated me. Somebody brought it up in chat earlier, and exactly the one I was thinking of. Have you ever seen Hurt Locker, Parent? Yeah. Okay, so you know what? Yes. It's a terrible movie, but um, yep. nothing against the actor, Jeremy, whatever his name is. Great great actor. I, I like his stuff, but but the movie was, was, was shit. Uh, but this scene was yep. interesting. All right, Jake, go ahead and play it. I don't even remember this. This is at the end. This is he's come back from the deployment, and he's home. There's his, his lovely bride, his child... I do know somebody that is just recently back from deployment would not have hair that long. Wow. Here's some shopping. Yeah. Got some soda. We done? So he's just like. You want to get us some cereal? I'll meet you at the checkout. Th this life is so inane. Okay. I can't believe cereal. I'm here. I've lost all my purpose. Where? Well, that's potentially, right? So I th let's see how far the clip goes, because it, as I recall, it's an interesting transition. I don't know how far this one actually plays out. Yeah, I only ever watched this once because I yeah. hated it so much. Yeah, it was not awesome. Okay, and so I think what happens is like the next scene is like he's he links up with his wife and they, and they whatever, and then like it cuts to him stepping off a C one thirty full battle rattle back in the desert 
and he does this little smile. Um, as I remember it, because yeah, I've only seen it once, maybe twice. Um, so what what were you saying? What what were your thoughts on that scene? Because I like that scene. I don't like that movie, but I like that scene. Yeah, I can relate to that. I've got pictures hmm. uh, of myself on R and R. Like that's a surreal experience. Like when when you come home on your mid tour R and R and you go home for two weeks, and you're back home. Uh, that transition is like, to me, like very weird where yeah. you were flying combat missions and then you're home for, you know, it takes about two days to get home and then your R and R stars and it takes about two days to get back. And you're just kind of, you step back into their lives. They have no idea what you've been doing really other than right. what you tell them, but that's not, you know, that's not a real, sort of like day to day, like, um, the stresses you're going through, et cetera. Like you can't relate that you have to live it. Uh, and, and to step back into your family's lives, like that is absolutely true in terms of like, uh, you know, here I am, I, I'm going to turn on and watch reality TV <laughs> and waste, you know, waste time, maybe go to the beach, you know, and, and enjoy that time. But it was definitely like it was a kind of a surreal experience. Yeah, I think with that scene, because there's a couple ways to interpret and I don't really know that there's a right answer or what they intended. You made a comment of like this sort of inane life, like there's no, you know, no purpose other than pick the cereal out. Um, and I can see that. The other part that I see, the way that I've always interpreted that scene, and I've described this to other people when I talk about, you know, my own kind of experiences and coming out of deployments and stuff, it's the overwhelming choices. And I think that being deployed, you don't have to think about living, right? You just have to think about surviving, but everything is built for you. You don't have to figure out what to wear. You don't have to figure out what to eat. You know, generally speaking, I mean, you probably have some choices. Dude, I go through but... a crisis every morning trying to pick out what I'm going to wear. Like I never had to worry about that before. Right. Yeah. When I worked, uh, when I did an interagency thing at the FAA, you know, for a year when I was still uh, in the army, yeah. Picking out what tie, like, well, I wore that tie yesterday. I can't wear that tie today. Like it sounds silly, but when you're an army guy, like you don't think about that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, but that's what I think about in that scene is like, he, it, it's, it's all those things, but part of it too, to me, the part that speaks is like, is, is being overwhelmed with options where you've come from something where deployment is simple. Cause I think that's what it boils down to is people ask like, well, what's it like to be deployed? And it's simple. It's, it's almost, I mean, it's fun in a way, but it's so necked down to the basics that you don't have to think about all this obscure stuff, man. You just do your job. You have fun with the boys and maybe you get to shoot stuff. But, you know, other than that, like you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about what kind of cereal to get. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only choices like that guys probably struggle with are when they go into the PX and they got 55 different kinds of protein powder. They got to to go through right. to pick which one they want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the choices we had in Terrencout was uh because we had that Baskin Robbins thing. So we had like five or six different ice cream flavors. 
yeah. that was that was pretty tough. Which I I gotta get one of my platoon leaders on because he was it was a classic line. I, I gotta get him on just so I can make fun of him for it. But um, we were in Tarancout and you guys in Kandahar had the panini machines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We didn't have that. We were all roughing it up in in Tarancout. And I remember him saying something. We were all sitting there eating chow one day, and he's like, man, I wish we had one of those panini machines. And I was just, man, man, can you imagine the dudes in, like, the Battle of the Bulge if their ghosts could see us talking right now? We're in the middle of Kandal, or the middle of Afghanistan talking. We wish we yeah. had a panini press, you know? <laughs> but uh, but those that's the hard life that we live. Uh, you, you just reminded me of, a, of an R&R &R story where um, we had – this was OIF – to um 0405 but we, we like i said we had to flow through balad to get on the transports to go to uh uh dubai and uh that was the first time like there was a crowd of maybe 10 or 15 of us and we were walking around balad they had a swimming pool um they got the big px where you can go in and buy whatever you want like we had been living on a forward you know quote unquote semi-austere for aviation, definitely austere, but, you know, our ground troops were, like, living out of their rucksacks and little forward cops and yeah. whatnot. But, like, we didn't we didn't have the option to buy new gear. There there was no KBR, you know, the DFAC facilities. Like, our food was in Mermites. It was the, the heat in a can and open up kind of unit unit meal stuff. Uh, and that's what we lived on for, for months and months. And then you go to Balad, which is, you know, R-E-M-F, um, rear echelon MFers. Uh, and they got everything, basically. And you spend the night there. And we went into the big chow hall. And it happened to be Friday night. Like, hey, it's uh, surf and turf night. Steak and lobster night, yeah. right? So like, cool. Like, this is freaking awesome. They got ice cream, panini bar, steak and turf, you know, surf and turf, baked potatoes, like you name it. And we're going through the line, just loading up. And we sat down at a big table and, you know, three or four of us that were traveling together with just like grinning ear to ear with all the choices that we had. And we sat down across and there was, I'm not talking pejoratively about the National Guard, but it was a National Guard E7 that came up. And he was clearly like not a, a PT Excel, you know, top performer. And he sat down across from us and he puts his tray down and he, you know, he just kind of looks at it and he goes, God dang it. Steak and lobster again. <laughs> and, and we were just all sitting across from him going, get out of here. <laughs> you know, like we haven't had fresh food in probably six months, you know, and yeah. like that set the tone for me. You know, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, it's the haves and the have nots. And I, you know, I don't, I don't blame, you know, if you got it, use it. You know, I mean, yeah. Helen Kandahar, they had a TGI Fridays there for a while. Um, but uh, it did suck to be in a situation where you, you couldn't partake, but you could see it. And that, you know, again, movie scenes, right? There's that scene in um, Saving Private Ryan, right? They finished the, the yeah. invasion of the beach. Tom Hanks goes up to headquarters and dude's got like the big ass, like just thinking about that sandwich just looks so tasty, like the roast beef or whatever. It just looks yeah. so good. You, you know, and he's just watching these, these dudes who, you know, they didn't storm the beach. They're chowing down on these big ass sandwiches. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you did mention it. 
the last thing I think we'll talk about tonight since we're running, running into it is, uh, how pilots view other pilots. Cause you were telling a story to me the other day. Uh, I think you said they were, you thought they were F 16 pilots. It really doesn't matter, but tell, tell us that story and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. So this was, uh, in Kandahar, um, in 0910 and, you know, Kandahar, otherwise known as CAF is in RC South in Afghanistan. And it's a big hub. Like there's two big hubs in Afghanistan. There's a uh, Bagram air force base and there's, Kandahar Air Base. And so that's where everything flows into and out of. So uh, we happen to be um, stationed on CAF and you were part of our organization, but you were actually separated at a, at a smaller base called Terrancal. But Kandahar was also multinational. And so you had UN, not UN. Yeah, it was UN or NATO. I guess. Well, NATO. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you, you had all flavor, like everybody, all the NATO nations kind of approached, there was two ROEs, like, you know, the rules and everything were, were a little bit, everything was more convoluted because you had a multinational force there, but every country brought a little bit of their own, uh, like back home flavor. So you, the Germans had a PX, the Dutch had a PX. Um, some of them served alcohol, like the Germans and the Dutch, they could drink alcohol in theater. Us Americans could not, uh, but you could go into their PX and buy like nice chocolates and all different kinds of stuff. So op options you didn't have up in TK, obviously. Right. Um, no. But one of the things we had there, which is pretty famous for being downrange is green beans coffee. So think of like, uh, that's a Canadian company. And, uh, so we had the, the Canadians were there with us. The Canadians were a good shit. Like they were, they were out there. They were one of the quote unquote fighting forces. Most of the European countries, um, did administrative stuff like run, um, stayed within the air base. The Canadians were, and the Brits were actually across the wire with us. Uh, but they had a, a green beans coffee there and, you know, we, there's no star. I, I don't think there was a Starbucks at the time, but green beans no. is the same. Um, yeah. So we would go and, you know, get an iced coffee or, you know, get a coffee every day. And we're standing in line and, you know, it's the only joint in town. So there was usually like a 20 minute wait to go through there. And so we just, you know, stand in line, wait to cycle up and place our order. And we were talking about the previous day's events and they're, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but we were, you know, talking about some fight that we had gotten into, uh, and referencing like where it was and what had happened a little bit, um, who we were talking to, et cetera. And maybe four or five places behind us, there was some green suit, uh, pickle suit wearing guys. So air force, um, and they were within earshot and they were just listening to us. And, uh, you know, they, they kind of chimed in at one point and they were like, Hey, uh, so you guys helicopter pilots, like, what do you guys do? And, uh, we we're like, yeah, we're 58 guys. Oh, what's your call sign? Oh, we're Seamus. What are you guys? And I forget what, you know, what, what they were, um, I'll make something up. You know, they were Falcon or whatever. Um, but when we said, yeah, we're the 58 guys, you know, we were down over at, uh, near Frontenac, you know, three days ago. And he's like, oh yeah, we were overhead. You guys are shameless. And then, then they got real quiet. Like I could tell they were wanting to come into the conversation 
like in, injecting where the role they had, oh, we dropped a bomb or whatever it was. Um, but when we told them we were the 58 guys and basically we're the ones that they're always watching, you know, dusting it up, <laughs> like literally in the yeah. dust, um, they sort of got a little bit quiet and so yeah, you guys are, you guys are in the mix all the time, huh? And yeah. you could tell that they were, that, that thought was percolating in their heads. So we got a couple cool points that day with the Air Force. Yeah, I always think it's interesting, like, how we all get along. I, I I struggle to think of anyone that I know in another community, whether it's a fighter pilot, whether it's a, a lift guy, a 160th guy. Like, we talk shit about all of them. We all do it to each other, right? Um but I, I don't know of anyone where I'm like, yeah, screw that guy. Like there's probably one or two, you know, that just because of the nature of who they are has nothing to do with what they fly. Um, and I just always thought that was interesting. Like the, the duality of that relationship that we all have and, um, and how we get along. Jake, did, were you able to get that picture working? Uh, I can screen share it. Give me two seconds. So, yeah, I mean, just, just while he's doing that, but just to kind of like tie a couple threads together, like that was one of the few times where it was cooler to be a helicopter pilot than a jet fighter pilot, right? right. That that was one of the times where I felt like I came out ahead. Um, right. <laughs> years and years ago, uh, I was deployed to JTF six, Joint Task Force six, which was in uh, El Centro, California, which is the border the border patrol mission. This was uh, ninety nine, I think, and we're out there for a couple of months. Um, and El Centro was where the Blue Angels train off season. So they go there mm. uh, and they spend the winter there. Um, and we were operating out of a hangar and flying our border patrol mission every night. Um, and some F-16 or uh, F-14s had come in on a, you know, TDY and they were doing some cross-country training or something. And they were there for a couple of days. So we wandered over there to their hangar one day just to you know we were off cycle or whatever just killing time we're poking around the aircraft like we wandered into the hangar we're you know <laughs> kicking the tires on the f-14 and you know checking things out and one of the pilots came over and he was like hey what are you guys doing it's like you know we were like super friendly there i was a i was a w1 maybe a w2 at the time i don't remember there was three or four of us and uh we had our, like two guys had their pickle suits on. So they quote unquote looked like pilots. And we had our old school, like uh, two piece ABDU flight suits on. Right. So we didn't really look like pilots. So he wasn't really sure what to make of us. Like he yeah. clearly, he didn't know what warrant officers were. He's a Navy JG or whatever. Right. Right. So he didn't really know where we fit in. He was like, Hey, what are you doing? I was like, Hey, cool aircraft, man. Like, uh, you know, love the F-14. We're just striking up a conversation with him. And, uh, when, when it came out, like when he asked us what we did, it was like, oh, we're the helicopter pilots, you know, we're flying the 58s from across, from across the ramp. Like immediately he went just like, Oof. like, <laughs> like he just shut down. He's like, you guys aren't worthy of my time. Like get the yeah. fuck out of my hair. Yeah. <laughs> like the conversation <laughs> was over. So he like, he knew we were pilots, but when it came out, we were army helicopter pilots. Like right. he just garbage. Yeah, was yeah. You guys are like, get out of here. <laughs> I went to the joint firepower course. Yeah, here's that picture. I don't know if, if you can make that bigger. I, this picture's so funny. Uh, 
it's it's the old for those who can't see it it's the old gi joe um you know at the end knowing is half the battle type thing but it's got it's got flint and he's i think that's flint i don't remember uh and he's looking at three kids and they're saying sir how does it how how long does it take the average person to become an attack pilot so sorry son but the average average people don't become attack pilots I, I love this one because it's always I see it pop up all the time in social media yeah. and immediately the 60 dudes roll in with, yeah, only below average people become attacked. Right. So there's different ways to interpret it. And it's always just and it becomes a, a rumble in the jungle about it. Um, I mean, you know, the, and then we the then we counter with, well, you guys, you guys sit next to each other so you can hold hands. You know, like it just it devolves. <laughs> what, one of my favorite cartoons, um, Jake, if you can. If you can look for the ambiguously gay duo, sure. Um, Google that real quick. But that's you know the rivalry between the 58 community and the 64 community going back into antiquity has always been pretty good. Like we love each other, but um, one of my favorites was you know making fun of the the tandem seating Apache dudes. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> you remember that? It's it's a cartoon from SNL. Yeah, um, yeah, and. <laughs> <laughs> I it, it I mean it was on it was on uh, live commercial TV so it's perfectly fine to show but that's the one oh, yeah. I always bust out even though I are an Apache pilot now you know <laughs> well yeah the Ace and Gary um, Gary and Ace yeah another one and this this will shut people down too um oh the movers here he says that's our new Tinder profile <laughs> um is um uh from firebirds of course the panties on the head that was another good one when 58s were still around i remember we were at Mul driving out to mullinelli so mullinelli for those who don't know is the, the 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 gunnery range in flight school so that's where you would go out and do all your training um what would happen is if if barrett and i were were students together one of us would fly out in the aircraft and the other would ride in a bus and then we would meet out there. So when I'm done with my iteration of shooting, I would get out and ride the bus home and he would then fly back with the instructor pilot. So I'm on this bus with this other dude. Um, he was an Australian by birth, but he was a U.S. citizen. So he was just witty as hell as, as most Australians are. And so we're on the bus and there's this one Apache student and he's just a loud mouth, just running his mouth all the time about 58, you know, says something. And, um, and I think I, one of us, me or the, oh, I think it was me. I said to him, Hey man, when do you guys start wearing the panties on your head? You know, for training. And the Aussie did not miss a beat. He's like, better question. When do you stop wearing panties? And it just, you know, it just shut the dude down for a second. It was a good feeling, but you know, you, you get those, yeah. those gentle ribbings, um, uh, in yeah. the community. One, one of the hardest things that I had to get used to was having to punctuate every sentence with attack after I went to the ATC. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different community, but again, kind of going back, like, I think we always in the aggregate look at the other communities, like they're just a bunch of, you know, just douchebags. doesn't matter what, right. It's like, Oh, you're a fighter pilot. You're a douchebag. Oh, you're 160th guy. You're a douchebag. Oh, you're 58. You know, we all kind of lump in, but then when you get to know these dudes, like, again, it's very hard to like think of a guy and say, no, actually the guy's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so it's always a, a culture, you know, a culture thing, but it, I, yeah, that so, that meme popped up the other day and it just made me think of it yeah every time there was some sort of infraction on the range it's a 60 dude <laughs> <laughs> any sort of almost midair any sort of like uh 
you know, impact area, incursion, whatever, it's a 60 dude. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think certain communities do lend themselves to doing certain things. I, I'm trying to think what 58 guys were known for other than just being badasses. I, I can't think of anything. I think that was trying it. to talk to ATC when we're trying to practice instruments. <laughs> that's like notorious, notoriously. That's what they all make fun of us. Well, the Apache guys too, back in the, before the, before the echo, right. They didn't. Yeah. Well, it was an emergency. Kind of a joke. Yeah, I mean, it was an emergency. In fact, I was just flying with a guy the other day, a captain, and uh, we were talking about training, like you know where we came from and stuff. And I and I mentioned to him, like, yeah, when I when I started my fixed wing training, you know, 15, 20 years after I'd started flying, I had like eight hours of actual weather time, you know, and that was like three hours in flight school and like the whatever mandatory five hours I had in the echo model transition. But that was it, you know, because we just didn't fly instruments. We didn't really have the, um, yeah, the thing, um, discord sounds happening. Is that, is that coming through anyway? Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was funny. That meme just popped up the other day and it made me, you know, think about it. Um, we could probably yeah, go on. The one, uh, stories. There's, there's one I love. There's, uh, an Air Force, probably a lieutenant, he's on one of those um, hoverboards, the wheeled hoverboards that you stand on and you kind of lean forward and he's going past him. Yeah, he's going past him, enlisted guy. And he's wheeling past him, giving a salute. Like, this is the most yeah. Air Force thing I've seen all day. Yeah, he's got his nice green, his green pickle oh, yeah. suit, looking sharp. It's probably probably hasn't flown in years, but he's, he's wearing the pickle suit every day. Yeah, yeah. 100%. All right. Well, I guess we've been rattling on long enough. I like I said in the beginning, this is sort of just uh, incoherent uh, f from the beginning. That was kind of the plan. We just wanted to get together and, and chat. So Barrett and I had talked uh, a little bit over the weekend and uh, just figured out uh, we just jump on here. So I think if, if you're cool with it, I think we'll kind of do this, you know, every so often. If, if you're good, we need to grab some other yeah. dudes. We need to grab Luke up. Uh, definitely. I talked to him the other day about coming on. So, you know, the three of us can, uh, can BS and, uh, just tell. Right on. Stupid yeah. Notice I, I also have, um, yeah, a helmet that mysteriously fell off a truck. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. Just found I one know, just like your helmet. Is. Yeah. It's what you got another one there too, though. Is that, that's yeah, like an that's old, an old SPH four. That's what I started with. Oh, really? You st Oh, cause you crewed. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. that, that just fell off my hand receipt. Like I never yeah, had. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird how that stuff happens. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so weird too, with your hand receipt, like the things that, that really do fall off and then you're, you're stuck with it and you're like, well, I have, I have this stuff still and you know, and then they don't want it or whatever. I, that's it's like, very strange. Yeah, I mean, you're making me turn in my black trench coat that you gave me in 1994 that like, isn't even yeah. in the inventory anymore. Like, why is that still on my hand receipt? When I cleared Fort hood, the artist formerly known as Fort hood, and this was 2018. They wanted my aviator glasses, the ones <laughs> they issue at, Ru yeah. which I'd never worn. I mean, I'd lost them for, you know, years ago. Um, and they wanted those back and you could not clear without it. And I was like, well, how much does that cost? And I looked in the little book there, you know, like this book, like this thick, you know, just everything in it, you know? And I looked, I was like 10 bucks. I was like, all right, I'm paying that right now. But, um, yeah, very strange. But then I had like body armor left over. 
I mean, because you know how it is. When we deployed, it got to the point where they would just throw stuff at you. Remember, you'd like, like, hey, tomorrow yeah. we're going to RFI, the Rapid Fielding Initiative. We're going to RFI. And you knew you were leaving with two or three duffel bags full of everything. Just clothe the, the, the cold weather clothing alone, you could open a store. It was ridiculous. In fact, when I yeah. cleared Hood, I turned in, I want to say I, I, I took in two shopping carts full of nothing but cold weather gear to get off. I still have a bunch of stuff that's still in the plastic wrapper. That's 20 years old. Yeah. Um, And yeah, that, that stuff that it goes next to your skin. So they, they don't take a lot of the, you know, that undergarment stuff back. Yeah. Um, But yeah, if I ever do go hunting in Alaska, I'm going to, I'm well stocked. Yeah. You're totally, totally prepared. Um, yeah, I was, it was a great like feeling a to get rid of all this bag or something. What's that? Do you have like a Casmo mailbag portion or? Oh no, I, I should, I'm not, I'm not as uh, advanced as a mover. He's got, he's got <laughs> phone in stuff and he's got all kinds of questions. Um, yeah, I don't have it. Sh- share. Oh no, Jake, it's fine. We, with that moment has passed. He's asking me <laughs> if you should share the. I was a little concerned about that one. No, I mean, that one's fine. Like you said, it has been on TV, but um, who who knows these days? But if you don't know who Ace and Gary is, you should definitely go check it out. Oh, you couldn't find it? (laughs) Yeah. I think he found it, but he was scared. Ah, come on. We're all politically correct here. Scared is the right word. (laughs) Scared is the right word. Whoever says he feels attacked. No, not at all. Um. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, this train wreck will we'll, we'll put a stop to it. And uh, I appreciate you guys watching. And uh, I don't know. We'll get together soon. I don't know when yeah, that'll this be. Is, this is fun, man. Cobra, Slasher 02. Got uh, friendlies on the northeast side. And we also have uh, hot spots on the east side over the wall. Confirmed. All right, once again, big thank you to Barrett Knox for coming on to the show. I think we're going to have him more often. We'll just kind of just get together and talk about various things when I can't get, like, you know, a guest that's something particular or specific, uh, like a specific airframe or a specific experience or something like that. I am working on a very special guest, someone who's actually been on the show before, trying to get him back on. In fact, he's already agreed to it. Uh, Barrett will join me with that one as well. But uh, I'm going to hold off on announcing who that is. You could probably guess if you really think about it and you've been listening to the show for a while. Uh, but uh, we'll be looking to do that here in the next, I don't know, month or two. Just depends on uh, schedules. Anyway, thanks again. Again, a big thank you to Patreon supporters and for people who do go to the merch store because those things do keep the show going. Keep my motivations high, and we will talk to you next time. Take it easy.